You're listening to an Artache podcast. Danish design is renowned for sleek lines, sophistication, and groundbreaking craftsmanship. Denmark Design, an exhibition currently on at the Auckland Art Gallery, examines the history of Danish design icons, including furniture, fabric, jewellery, ceramics, and toys. Today I'm talking with Emma Jamison, Assistant Curator of International and New Zealand Historic Art for the Auckland Art Gallery and Coordinating Curator to this particular exhibition. Hi Emma. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. I remember the first time I saw a ruddy old office chair being sold as mid-century furniture on K Road. I bought and then I thought about it and I supposed, yes, well, actually it is mid-century furniture. Most of what the show is in the show is actually mid-century, maybe slash late 60s. What are the specific differences between Danish design as opposed to French design from the mid-century to the 70s sort of era? Yeah, so the, you're right. The bulk of the show is from about the 19, like probably about 1945 up until about 1975. And um, what I think is really unique about Danish, it's called organic modernism, but Danish modernism in the post-war period is its um, articulation of the same modernist beliefs in purification and simplification of form, but they're doing it through wood, which is quite unique at this point in time. So Denmark was quite... Uh, reluctant to embrace industrial materials, um, which countries like Germany had incorporated into their architecture and designs from about the late 1920s, early 1930s. But Denmark was quite reluctant to go down that road. And um, through wood, they could articulate this quite distinctive design vision um, in which uh, these radical new forms uh, that could be seen in like the States, for example, by the Eames furniture, for example, that was articulated in a very Danish sensibility that was totally founded on um, good craftsmanship of wood and uh, simple, robust forms. And that interest in uh, wood, uh, and particularly goes back to the 1920s in Denmark. And um, wood, right from the very beginning, during this time, was uh, used almost to uh, stimulate the national economy to uh, protect the country against other um, industrial activities in other European countries, like, for example, Germany. Why do you think they didn't want to embrace the uh, materials of the, the the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, I think it's... I've been trying to um, understand this a little bit more, but I think it's annoyingly one of those kind of like more evocative... Um, aspects of furniture design from Denmark, I think it really relates to the country's national sensibility. And I think if you're not from Denmark, you can't really articulate that very well. But from what I've um, heard when speaking to people who know a lot about Danish design or Danish designers themselves, um, they do talk about how the country's ethos is very much, I think because it's a small country, um, it's it's quite... Um, Almost like in a way to New Zealand, you know, it's not a country of sudden extremes or um, sudden changes in aesthetics or direction. It's kind of like this undulating trajectory. And I think that's why um, the traditional material of wood was used up until about the 1960s as a way to um, kind of straddle this interest in modernity and radical form, but also um, evoke the past, shall we say, to a certain extent. Geographically, Denmark sits just before, it kind of goes into Iceland and that's sort of got the extreme kind of really cold areas, mm. Copenhagen, etc. Yeah. On one side, and then there's Germany, and that goes more into Europe. So I suppose they, they, it's possible that 
they, I don't know, I'm just very curious about the, the mentality behind their lack of adoption. Did they, was wood their main export? Why were they so stubborn in terms of not using industrial materials? Why did, how did, um, how did Norway and places like that, uh, what was their furniture design like at the time? Were they adopting contemporary materials or did they have, or, or did they reject it as well? And is it possible that Denmark's awareness of, I guess, more, a more holistic approach, is it possible that it came from the influence of those more extreme places where you really have to be aware of wellness because you're going to have half the year in darkness and that's very depressing? Yeah, I think that's certainly an aspect to it, right? I think, um, and that's come up when I was talking to um, the, the Danish ambassador was here for the, the opening of the exhibition. I got to talk to him about this. And he was saying that exactly right, um, because during winter, up in the, the northern parts of the northern hemisphere, you don't really have that much daylight hours. So um, the home is such a, a locus of um, social interactions. You know, you have friends over, you don't really go out so much during the winter. And it's a, it's a place of, I mean, like it is here in New Zealand uh, to a different extent, but it's a place of refuge, right? A place of solace. You want it to be cosy and comforting. You want it to um, create this kind of harmonious environment that feels separated from the rest of the world. So I think that's absolutely a part of it. And I am not an expert at all on Scandinavian furniture. I know, you know, about Denmark, but... I've heard in passing that, um, for example, designs from Norway uh, were even more um, grounded in this kind of traditional wood aesthetic than Denmark. So quite, um, someone used the term folksy. I don't know how accurate that is. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you can probably definitely place it within a larger Scandinavian um, ethos. And in the 1940s, um, Den- Danish design was very much marketed as Scandinavian design as part of this wider movement of furniture from Sweden and Norway. So in the 1940s, it was incorporated into this kind of wider geographical area. But um, I, I think, um, again, like I was saying, I don't know too much about Swedish and Norwegian furniture, but looking at the differences I've seen, um, I think what is different is these um, kind of radical forms inspired by designs in America that they were now articulated through wood, which is quite different from uh, particularly Norwegian furniture. Yeah, and there's quite, a, interestingly, there is quite a lot of, as a side, flexibility in some of those designs when you use wood in a certain way and layer them in a certain way, which, of course, yeah. comes through some of those designs. Yeah. I, I personally love mid-century furniture, which um, which is pre- this pre- exhibition presents um, the premium outputs of that period, in my mind. Yeah. Um, how influential is Danish design in today's contemporary furniture and homeware design? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely had a bit of a resurgence lately. And you can see that in um, the proliferation of um Danish mid-century furniture in stores, right, Ponsonby, for example, <laughs> it's um, definitely become very trendy again. But I think that's because of its um, it's it is it's quite a timeless aesthetic, right? And um, it's definitely appealing. It's it's interesting because um, in America in the post-war period, the reason why um, Danish wooden furniture designs by like Finjul and Hans Weiner were so popular, for example, was because of this. What I was saying before, the straddling of um, modernity and also harking back to the sense of like a traditional nostalgia. And I think I, I do wonder if that's why we're becoming more interested in it, in it again now. You know, like the world's quite a fluctuating place at the moment. And so if you can make your home surroundings a bit more beautiful and cosy, then, you know. Well, I always thought the reason I'm seeing it, and I'm delighted to see that that style has been re-presented brand new, is because from my era, <laughs> which isn't that 
that far back, but that was our student furniture. Oh, interesting. So so we would be dragging those 70s styled kind of dainty footed couches and um, totally that style. Yeah. Well, no, it's not even 70s. It's actually mid-century style. Yeah. But New Zealand being so behind the times at that point, I associate it with 70s office furniture or whatever. Mm. Um, and now that my generation is homemaking and owning houses yeah. with small families and you know, sanitising villas and basically now sanitising the furniture as <laughs> yeah. well. So rather than um, refabric- refabricate the old couches at the so that I mean, so many people I know have collections of that kind of furniture and that style, uh, just buying it new. Well, yeah. That's what my thought was, is, is actually for our generation who are there to buy, who are buying it. But they're probably, I mean, you've got a different perspective on that. Well, no, I mean, I don't know whether it's because of this show, but I'm literally seeing Danish chairs everywhere now. Uh, yeah, like yeah. I was at the Kimchi Project last night and they've got Hans Wagner's wishbone chairs. Um, and so it's just, it's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you can just, and, um, you know, uh, you can really see in designs, for example, by Nat Cheshire, for example, there's definitely an influence. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So Danish design considers the interlink between home decor and the experience, yeah. um, similar in a way to Japanese Zen interior design. Yeah. Uh, what is the interlink here, do you think? The interlink between Japan and Denmark? Yeah. Well, interesting question because um, the show Denmark Design was, it, so it's been put actually put together by a Japanese touring company and um, with uh, the independent curators, Michael and Mariko Whiteway, who've got connections with um, Japan. And the show was put together to mark the... I think it's the 150th anniversary, it's like treaty organisation, um, treaty relationship between Japan and Denmark. So there's, there's been um, this trade relationship between the two countries since the 19th century, the late 19th century. And I don't know too much about the particulars of it, but what I do know is that Danish mid-century furniture is immensely popular in Japan. And quite a few of the objects in the exhibition actually come from private collections in Japan, as well as a design museum in Denmark. And the the um, the most interesting fact that I learned during the install of the exhibition, one of the um, the um, exhibition couriers from Japan was there to help us, you know, condition check everything. And she told me that they're actually um, opening a replica of the Finn Yule house, which is in Denmark. They're opening a replica of that next year in Japan. So there's this there's this real connection between the two of them. And I think um, kind of delving into it a bit more deeply, um, there is definitely the influence of, say, Japanese and Chinese motifs in Danish mid-century furniture, particularly in Hans Wegner's furniture. He referenced a lot of Japanese and Chinese chairs in his design. So I think that's an interesting link too. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Mm. I didn't know about the trade relationship, so that would yeah. totally make sense, wouldn't it? Cause yeah, I think that happened um, in the, the 19th century. That's when Japan started to be opened up, shall we say, to the West, which is very much part of that traditional historical narrative regarding Japanese prints, for example. Um, and so, yeah, Japan started forging trade relationships with um, France and then Denmark and other European centres, yeah. Very interesting. Mm. And... Mm, okay. I wonder if they, and maybe not Germany straight away because it's more landlocked. I don't know too much about that. I know, I'm going I, into areas I'm like, <laughs> Sorry. yeah, let's look at, yeah, let's not. Okay. <laughs> trade history, suddenly. We can speculate. This is not a podcast about trade history. Um, so Danish society, mm. I feel somewhat connected to this. Mm. Uh, what were the principles and social contexts that gave rise to this new way of living? Ah, so I think there's a couple of different layers to this. I think um, 
A key aspect of this is actually the social welfare reforms that were developed in Denmark, I think in the first two decades of the 20th century. And so those welfare reforms um, essentially created this ethos in which um, every citizen in the country was respected and kind of, you know, the the welfare state, like trying to look after each individual. I think you can um, definitely see that um, the influence of those reforms in the design ethos that started emerging in the um, post-World War One period. So after 1918, um, the design theorists um, and designers themselves, Carter Clint and Paul Henningsen, really advocated for um, the production of furniture for the everyday people. And so um, right from the 1920s, Carter Clint and Borgen Morgensen are producing furniture for the... Um, Danish cooperatives and the idea behind that was to create a standardised system of furniture production that could make things easier and faster and therefore more cheaply um, produced Um, and so I think that that really demonstrates the influence of the welfare reforms and that that interest is still in Denmark today I mean like you know the the complot chairs and things like that they're very they were first designed for example I think the hay chair was first designed for use in prison so this kind of idea that design is not just for certain echelons of society it should trickle down into private and public spheres um, and cater to the needs of those different environments and I think the other aspect that's trickled down into the design ethos and this is particularly the case with, for example the toys is um, right from the early 20th century um, Danish childcare um, models are really based on like the Montessori system for example this belief in um, the, the centrality of unstructured play and stimulating the imagination, not only for children, but also for adults. And so you can see that emerge in, for example, Lego, Kaibos and Monkey. This um, Did they invent Lego? Yeah, D- D- Lego's Danish. And it obviously wasn't plastic initially. No, so... Um, Originally, uh, they started working with wood, so they started producing wooden toys, and then they wanted to embrace um, the new materials of plastic. I think they were the fir- one of the first companies in the world to use plastics and toys. And again, they wanted to create a standardised design that could be replicated easily, but also uh, played with more freely and yep. be put together in different shapes. And fun fact, Lego, <laughs> the name Lego comes from Legot, which means play well in Danish. So that's where oh, that name comes from. That yeah. is an extremely fun fact. I, isn't it, just? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great one. I'm going to bring that out at Christmas. Oh, yeah. When we pull the crackers, I'll be like, oh, I've got a fun fact yeah. instead of a joke. I'm sure it comes, it'll come up in a pub quiz at some point, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. So you personally, Mm-mm. what is your favourite period of interior design? And I know that's a hard question because yeah. you'll be immersed with this Danish design yeah. right now and it tends to, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, any any curator who works on a show, they just become like kind of obsessed with it. So, I mean, I've been having, dr- literally, I'm not exaggerating here. I've been literally having dreams about Danish chairs for the past five months. <gasps> Like I'll wake up and I've just got the names like Anna Jakobsen, Hans Wegner, like just going on repeat in my head. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> but I really, I genuinely have I've formed quite a, an, I wouldn't say an emotional connection with the objects in the show, but I definitely do. I've really formed a real love of um, some of the objects. Um, it's very cliche to say this, and I'm very much aware that it, it's quite a boring answer, but I do love the peacock chair by Hans Wegner. That's one of my favourite pieces. What does it look like, the peacock it's, chair? It's um, like a... Uh, it's, it was based on an old Windsor chair, so it's the the chair that literally looks like a peacock feather, like oh, so yes. it's spinning up into the. It, 
expanding it up into the space with the the flat and round spindles. Uh, really beautiful. I just love its sculptural exuberance, and it just feels really uplifting when you look at it. Like it looks like it's projecting out into the space. Um, is that the one that's the hero image, the red chair? Uh, no, red chair. Oh, the, the red right. chair. That's the hero image for most of the press. Is that beautiful big red chair that's like a round? It flays. It splays out like like, but not quite like. It's just red. A big red armchair. Oh, the um, the chieftain chair by Finn Yule. That's another favourite of mine. That's yeah. really beautiful. Um, yeah, and I think um, I th- what I've really loved learning about in the making of this show is um, the different uh, materials and technologies that we use to articulate a design vision that goes back to the 1920s. So I've, I've really enjoyed learning about that, the, the ebb and flow, the oscillations, and you know the use of laminated wood, for example, um, wow. by Arne Jakobsen in the late 1940s. That's fascinating. Like He produced the first completely industrialised chair in Denmark, and it was designed for a factory so it's designed for the workers canteen in a factory and so the whole ethos behind that is to create this radical piece of furniture but very much um envisaged to be used in an everyday working environment which is amazing and then uh, i've really loved learning about uh, particularly the design of nana ditzel um in an ideal world it would have been just fantastic to have had a whole suite of her furniture in the show um she's a really interesting designer for the fact that um uh, we've got uh, four, yeah, four of her objects in the show. So we've got um, a fiberglass chair that she produced in the 1960s. Um, some examples of her beautiful jewellery. She taught herself how to be a jeweller, which is phenomenal. And then we've got a chair from 1993, and then actually a chair that was produced this year. And what connects all of these disparate design objects over a period of um, what 50, 60 years is this real interest in um, organic form. Um, she's really interested in how um, forms can uh, project out and then recede inwards, like kind of creating this enveloping experience. And she's also really interested in um, light and how that can be used to enliven pieces of furniture. And what I love about her practice is that um, she was obsessed with butterflies. <gasps> yeah, and so we don't have them in the show. Oh, you've got a butterfly tattoo. But she produced this um, series of chairs. We don't have them in the show, but they're, they're um, inspired by butterfly wings. And they're just so like cool and crazy. And they've got these um, psychedelic patterns on them. And yeah, it's just it's just been really fun learning about all of the different designs. Uh, I would... Um... I actually, butterflies are struggling at the moment, just a general oh, no. public announcement. Yeah, oh. <laughs> Wasps have, last summer wasps were seen. No, actually, yeah, wasps were seen. It was seen two wasps carrying a butterfly away between them. Well, it's good that the kill. wasps are helping out. Oh, no, to kill. Yeah, to kill it. they oh, kill okay, okay. They so they're not bun- helping out, actually, no, being quite malicious. they were murdering it. <laughs> oh, one gosh. Each, one each side. So um, I, 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 I highly recommend everyone... Breeding butterflies by have, buying swan plants. I'll have to research how to just buy swan plants, stick them in, in your garden, and hopefully yeah. the butterflies will come. And if they don't, and you're in a public park and you see swan plants and you see a, 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 a caterpillar, mm. take it Ta- okay, and take, take it the... to your own plant because then at least you can protect it. Mm, okay, so yeah, you got, is this your summer project? Um, well, it's, well, I actually haven't planted this one. I've bought two, and they've still not been planted. But you know, yes, it's my summer project. <laughs> That's a good one. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Emma, you're the assistant curator of international and New Zealand historical art for Auckland Art Gallery. What is the most interesting thing about your job? Ah, really good question. Um, I think the most interesting aspect of my job 
I think is that it really does encompass so much more than what I was anticipating before I started the role. And so, you know, like when I applied for the job, I thought it would be, you know, like research and putting together shows. And But there's just so much more to it than that. Like, I mean, a typical day for me will be uh, researching for a show, doing a bit of writing, doing things like this, for example, and then um, providing feedback on graphic design, doing tours around the exhibition. Um, wow, you get to f- provide feedback on graphic yeah, design. Yeah, so we're involved in the entirety of the process and... Um, uh, the various teams in the Auckland Art Gallery who are so you know fantastic at their jobs, they obviously drive that, but then we provide a bit of feedback and a bit of guidance or um, give a design brief, for example. So um, it's really, the role has really, um, it's been just such a wonderful professional and personal development experience. I've just learned so much along the way and I'm excited for obviously to continue in it and to learn new things and continue to push myself. Um, so I think, yeah, that, I think the role of a curator is probably so much more than what lots of people think it is. It's not just going into a storage room and spending hours by yourself researching artworks. I mean, we certainly do that, but it's such a multifaceted yeah. Role. And it also, uh, in being a curator, you really are almost like an intermediary, right, between the public and the, the actual institution. It's, it's, it's a much bigger responsibility. Yeah. That is really good that you're taking tours and yeah, that you I love it. feedback on all those yeah. elements because that is holistically part of the exhibition on all avenues. Absolutely. Know. And I love giving, and you know, sometimes we get to give tours to um, like uh, primary and high school students, and that's really amazing. And yes, yeah, it's, it's great. I'd love to go on a, a tour for primary school students and yeah. see how that how you translate to them, like how you speak to them and especially with the toys and the things you point out and all that sort of stuff would be very interesting. It would be. I haven't done one yet in Denmark Design, but I did a a tour for, I think, six and seven-year-olds around a painting of Indian miniatures a couple of years ago. Oh, that that would have been great. That was fascinating. We had lots of um, various interpretations of the narratives and the paintings that were... (laughs) (laughs) Cray-cray? Yeah, no, I mean, quite accurate too, but also quite crazy. (laughs) What are the main difficulties in getting a curating job? And was it difficult to get yours? Um, oh, that's a good question. I think it is really difficult to get curating jobs. It's highly competitive. Um, uh, a particular, I mean, it's very competitive in Aotearoa, but um, also from what I've heard about England and Australia and America. Like, so I feel very, very lucky to have got this job. And yes, it was quite. It was quite a. Um, I do feel really lucky to have this job. Um, it ca- essentially came out of years of working in uh, various gallery institutions and working as a writer and working unpaid internships and things like that. So I definitely put the the, the hard years in. Um, yeah. So arts and other specialised industries struggle during changing economic times such yep. as these. What is the cur- curatorial landscape looking like in general, do you think? I know that these are quite big questions Mm. but do you think it's a viable career choice these days absolutely I think um I think more than ever at this point in time in the craziness that's happening around the world I think art is such a powerful way in which to articulate responses to what's going on and I think more than ever I think art you know art has always um carried a potency even in like the 17th century for example um for people to express or respond to certain moments in economic crisis or political crisis or conflicts or anything. And I think um, the need for a curator or the need for art institutions is a thing that's going to continue for a very, very long time. Because they can, they're, they're, I guess in that sense, they're good, their positioning is very good at making sure that that uh, 
presentation is upheld and that, that communication is made because artists can't always do that. Yeah, very and well. It's, I mean, well, they can, they do through their work, but they're not communicators in, in the same way. Like you said, you're the you're the public. You're between the pub, the exhibition, or the artwork. And yeah, the public. I mean, I guess that, that's one model, isn't it? Like the public yeah. institution. So it's got various different facets to it. But um, yeah, and I think I mean it is an absolute shame that, for example, the austerity in the UK has meant that um, public institutions like the National Portrait Gallery, for example, and the Science Museum have um, suffered really quite severe um, financial cuts and which has really jeopardised their programme and their ability to care for their staff so hopefully that situation improves it's not so bad here in New Zealand I feel quite lucky about that um, but um, yeah I, don't, I think it's do you, What do you think the future holds? How do you think what do you think the solutions are for making that money and getting those energies put how do we prioritise this again? Have you you know have you got any thoughts around that? How we make that money come back into? <laughs> I mean, it is. I agree with you. Art's really important in times of crises because you've got people who can can communicate in a way that they're more sensitive and they can communicate things before it may arise. And but of course, during these sorts of economic changing times, they're the first things to get yeah get cuts so how do how do what do you think do you think it comes in ebbs and flows will we see a pick up again or is are things going to have to dramatically change i don't know i mean i i mean i i think it probably does come in ebbs and flows to be honest i think what's needed is um really a, a changing rhetoric around the um how important arts are in education. I think I think and Jacinda Ardern has been really uh, wonderful at articulating that in a different kind of vocabulary. But um, there, particularly when I was going through university about ten years ago, there was a real change in focus to degrees that linked directly to jobs and art history, for example. I mean, the amount of times I got asked, like, "Well, where's that going to take you?" got really boring, to be perfectly honest. But I think um, that that. Um, that perspective is incredibly limited, especially in um, this uh, changing economic context in which we're living, in which new technologies, etc., will make lots of very specific niche jobs actually redundant in the next 10 years. So surely an arts education is actually more flexible and you can apply it to various different circumstances and contexts. And I think that needs to be valued more by university institutions, I think, personally. I mean, it's just my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, not but, related to your that, Gary, but... Um, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like connecting in a way, if you were to connect arts with design thinking and creativity yeah. and... I, th- I definitely think people that go to—I mean, I went to art school. People that go to art that are in those those sectors of education learn and from just from learning from their predecessors uh, through history. You learn to adapt and you learn yeah. to think creatively and yeah. strategically in that way. I think that's definitely something you get taught, which has been overlooked at the moment, yeah. and that is always going to be needed. Yeah. If you see your job's going to be becoming redundant, you need to be able to adapt to uh, figure out a way to remodel the same thing in a way I guess yeah and then also you know in arts um you you're taught like you're saying you know to be adapting but um, but also um you're taught to be self-analytical which I think is such a powerful tool in no matter what industry you work in the ability to form an argument and then kind of neurotically self-analyze it and adapt it like it's it's a very powerful thing to do true it's quite disabling and crippling but (laughs) but it is it is actually good and once you learn to harness it to a degree yeah 
Um, as a millennial, mm. <laughs> yes. Hashtag millennial. Yeah. Um, you would have witnessed huge societal change in the past ten years. Yeah. What are your thoughts on how this translates into the art industry? Ooh. And 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 what drew you to the arts in the first place? So I guess uh, with 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 what drew you to arts will be different to what the arts are looking like now in terms of. Uh, we're seeing a breaking down of, um, of 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 the kind of hierarchy of art outside of the gallery, yeah. and we're seeing artists communicate over Instagram and social media more readily. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think um, that's really interesting. I think um, I mean the 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 shift in what's happened since I was at school, um, first learning art history uh, fifteen years ago. It's, it's just it's it's quite phenomenal actually to witness that. Um, we live in such a more image saturated world, and I think that's that's also really interesting because I think um, it's setting up different um, discourses, shall we say, with um, how we relate to images and vocalize them and interpret them, and it's become such a central part of young people's identity now, right? Like curating their lives through Instagram and things like that. And I think what I've noticed particularly is um, just thinking about, I mean, my education at school was fantastic. Like my teachers were amazing. But from what I've heard from current high school students who come into the gallery, um, the curriculum for art history anyway, I can only speak to that because that's what I did, um, has become so much more um, versatile and actually open to a wider variety of uh, artists and art styles. Like when I went, through art history at school it was very much like um Rita Angus and you know like kind of teaching these like quite traditional canons of art history which is a very important um learning model and obviously invaluable education but the impression I get is actually um in certain schools anyway is that teachers are looking more to contemporary artists and more um Māori and Pacific artists I mean this is a big generalization obviously doesn't happen in all schools but I think that's interesting I think um and to me that indicates um there's a real um, interest, I think, um, in schools at the moment in um, advocating for local art practice. Again, this is a big generalisation. Yeah. Um, so that's something that I've picked up on. So like a re-examination of, of actually the the, his, the, histori- the history as it's previously been told. It's, it's, it's the illumination period in that regard. I think it is moving forwards. I mean, like I said, I mean, this is really based on conversations I've had with certain teachers and obviously teachers do have a certain flexibility with the curriculum to yep. direct it in a way that's of interest to them. So Oh, interesting. I, I think they do. Well, I think with the the kind of structure of NCA or bursary allows them to do that. But um, that's yeah, that's definitely something I picked up on. Yeah. Thanks for coming in and chatting with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a, a fun time a, talking to you. Yeah, so, and yeah. I'm so grateful for that fun fact about Lego. <laughs> <laughs> so the only thing you take away from the Denmark. Oh, I know. <laughs> Um, so Denmark Design runs until Sunday the 2nd of February uh, at the Auckland Art Gallery, which is located on the corner of Wellesley and Kitchener Streets, open every day from 10 to 5, except Christmas Day. That's the only day you guys get off. Well, I'm sure you're planning. Are you going away? Oh, I absolutely am, yes. I'm going to Nelson Lakes. Oh, very yes. nice. Yes. For more info, please go to aucklandartgallery.com. And that was Emma Jamison. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you with the help of Liquid Studios. You're listening to an Artache podcast. Creative content from Artache.com.